Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to our latest mini episode where we continue with season one of The Leftovers, this time focusing on episode seven, Solace for Tired Feet. And if you think you're going crazy, well, friend, you've come to the right place. My name is Justin Hamilton, and you're safe in here with me at Big Squid. for joining me as we continue covering The Leftovers. I am loving your feedback to these podcasts and I'm rapt to be hearing from people who are re-watching the series and also from people who are experiencing it for the first time. It's been some really fun messages from people who are just a little bit, what is happening? It's been really gratifying. I feel like we have a lot of Nora converts and people just searching out the rest of Carrie Coon's work suddenly. So that's nice. Of course, you can find more Carrie Coon in season three of Fargo and she plays Ben Affleck's sister in Gone Girl. And actually, I recently reviewed her wonderful work in The Nest with Jude Law. Uh, There's more out there that's just off the top of my head, but you might find those to be some tasty treats to get you started. I feel like the podcast has really hit its stride this season, and a lot of that is because of you and your messages. If you're looking to chat about things, you can always find me on Twitter at JustinHamilton underscore. Comes with a little tick, so I must be official. Instagram at JustinHamiltonComedian, and on Facebook at my official page or the Big Squid pages. There's the open page and a private page where our Big Squid community discuss all manner of TV, movies, books, etc. without fear of spoilers. So if you'd like to come and join us there, please do so. So it is open to everyone and I'll answer your invite as soon as I can. Things have been a little bit busy with this TV writing job, but I'm trying to keep an eye on everything. And that comes to an end uh, in the last day of March, actually. So I will be around and a little bit more present as of April. 
Don't forget, I also have a big interview with author Ryan Hughes coming up very soon. You know from previous episodes how much I loved his book, XX, a novel graphic. So if you were XX curious, (laughs) you can start reading now before I release that in a couple of weeks. Or maybe you just want to hear Ryan talk about the book and then make a decision. There's no wrong answers to this. But if you want to jump in early, you've got a little bit of time to do so. Look, just before we get into it, I love doing these one-on-one podcasts with you as well. And I hope you're enjoying them. I appreciate your company and I don't take it for granted. Life is very busy out there. So thank you for spending any of your time with me. It is not taken for granted in any way. We're getting toward the tail end of season one of The Leftovers. So let's jump into episode seven, Solace for Tired Feet. Is he in there? What? My father, is he in there with you? They let him out? A couple years ago, our former chief started exhibiting some erratic behavior. What are you doing? I'm not at liberty to say. You don't remember, do you? What? Last night. Tell me where you are. Is he with you or not? Don't wake up. Don't anybody wake up. Go to sleep. We open on the striking image of a wall of posters that bear an image of Gladys with the words underneath, save them. The guilty remnant arrive and begin angrily ripping them down. Laurie and Jill notice each other and lock eyes for a moment, the street dividing them physically, their lives dividing them emotionally. Amy takes Jill away and they join up with their friends in the forest where they play a dangerous game of locking one person at a time in an abandoned fridge to see who can stay in there the longest before requesting to be let out. This insane stunt is carried out by the teenagers because a kid vanished from inside the fridge during the departure. Jill decides to go in and break the record, but when the door handle breaks, she is trapped inside, her air slowly thinning, her vision fading. Jules' friends panic, uncertain what to do. The fridge rolls over and the door suddenly opens to a blinding white light. And who is there to help Jill out? The man who hears voices, the man who feels holy, her grandfather, escaped from the mental institution. Kevin Garvey Sr. asks his granddaughter to not tell her dad. In Gary, Indiana, Tommy is still looking after a heavily pregnant Christine. He leaves her to buy painkillers and is called by Holy Wayne. He sounds desperate. He sounds belligerent, angry. Wayne tells Tommy to take half the money he gave him and leave it at a drop-off point. He also asks Tommy if he fucked Christine. The way he says fucked is accusatory, provocative, playing with Tommy's sense of responsibility and his obvious early affection towards her. Tommy smashes the phone. The spell is well and truly broken. All that remains is Tommy's sense of decency and desire to look after the scared pregnant girl that has been left in his care. Back in Mapleton, Kevin and Nora are enjoying another date. She invites him back to her place and Kevin playfully pretends to text Jill that he's going to Nora's for sex and that he's a little nervous. They both laugh there, clearly enjoying each other's company. When they arrive at Nora's house, Meg and another member of the Guilty Remnant is already there. Kevin tells them to leave, but Nora has a much better way of dealing with it. She just turns the hose on them. 
inside, Kevin is amazed at her handiwork. They chat, and in a moment of honesty, they admit that even though they're having fun together, they don't quite know how to talk to each other yet. Nora always responds to honesty. Kevin suggests he'll head home, but asks if she'd like to try again tomorrow night. Nora smiles. This is the correct response to this conversation. At home, Kevin learns that his father has escaped the mental institution. Jewel doesn't quite understand what he did previously, but we learn he hurt somebody and that he burned down the library. No wonder there was a fundraiser to buy a new one. No wonder that nobody really cared that the son of the man who burned down the previous library found a toy baby. No wonder Kevin is always so awkward in public. He carries with him the burden of the town's feelings towards him the same way that Nora does. When Kevin looks for his father at the mayor's house, she tells Kevin that she stopped seeing him a while ago, unable to deal with his voices. She also informs Kevin that he isn't coming to see her. He's going to head towards Kevin. At home, Kevin turns on his walkie-talkie and begins to drift. He's awakened by a knocking at the door and standing there on the veranda is Dean with a dog locked in a mailbox across the road. Kevin goes to check it and turns to find Tommy looking back at him from the house. As Kevin attempts to open the postbox, a vicious dog barks at him and suddenly Kevin awakens on the floor with a bandaged hand. Outside, a mangy, angry dog barks, tied up, confined. Kevin brought it home, but he has no memory of doing this. Later, Amy tries to talk to Kevin about what happened the previous night, but he brushes it off. He doesn't want to know. Amy returns to watching reruns of Perfect Strangers. They finally find Kevin Sr. after he's attacked a policeman he knows and actually likes and has also ransacked the library. The staff tell Kevin that his father needed to find something to give to his son. Unbeknownst to Kevin, his father has returned home and is let inside by Jill, who is wary but intrigued by her grandfather. She wonders if he found her in the fridge by accident. He says yes, but she's uncertain if this is true. And also the way Kevin Sr. plays with it, he leans into the subtle implication that maybe he did know. When Kevin arrives home, Kevin Sr. asks Jewel, when did you let your dad know I was here? When Jewel tells him it was before he was let in, Kevin Sr. is impressed. Good girl, he whispers before his son comes to take him away. On the way to the institution, the Kevins are held up by a march by the guilty remnant and Kevin Sr. uses the chaos as an opportunity to escape. The guilty remnant hold up signs that have taken the save her message and changed it to don't save her. Kevin heads straight to Matt's house where he finds his flock making the signs with Gladys's face on them. He calls Matt, discovers his father is with him and arranges to meet them later. Meanwhile, Tommy waits at the drop place to see who comes for the money. He follows the car to a small apartment and finds a man looking after another young pregnant Asian girl. It is a mirror image of Tommy and Christine. This pregnant girl pulls a gun on both men and fires about the apartment wildly. Holy Wayne promised her that she was the chosen one, not Christine. She's distraught and Tommy leaves. There is nothing he can do here. He returns to his responsibilities to Christine and finds blood throughout the house. He discovers that Christine has given birth to a little girl. At home, Kevin ditches his pills in an attempt to clear his mind. He's afraid he is going mad like his father. He then heads off to meet up with his father and Matt. 
they meet at a restaurant that Kevin Sr. used to take his son when he was young. It was the only way he could talk Kevin Jr. into going to church. Even as a youngster, he was sceptical. His father hands him a package and tells Kevin, I tried to keep you out of this, but they insisted. It is a copy of National Geographic from 1972. Your services are required, Kevin Sr. says. You need to accept it. You think I'm crazy, but I'm not. It's the truth. In a world where people disappear, how can you definitively believe that maybe the person speaking to you, who appears to be crazy, isn't maybe telling you some sort of truth? Kevin rejects his father and tells him, you abandoned me when I needed you. Kevin Sr. lashes out and the hidden policemen descend to calm Kevin Sr. down. Matt and Kevin return his father to the institution. His father hugs him and says, they're not going to let you off that easy, son. Kevin Sr. kisses his son and retreats back into his home at the institution. Kevin immediately drives to Nora's house and they make love. Later in bed, he confesses, I think I might be going crazy. Nora leans on one arm and smiles. Well, my friend, you've come to the right place. We again see them laugh. Their craziness is built on honesty. Meg informs Laurie that Kevin is sleeping with Nora. Laurie writes a one-word reply. So? At home, Kevin is in good spirits until he sees a copy of the National Geographic that he rejected from his father. He angers immediately, wondering how it came into the house. When Kevin Sr. was taken away, he dropped a piece of paper with the information about that magazine on it, and Jill, out of curiosity, ordered it. Kevin lashes out, Jill responds in kind, and Amy for once gives Kevin a disapproving look. Kevin throws the magazine in the bin. But later he looks at the cover, and for a moment, wonders what might be written inside, and how could it relate to him. This episode contains the first example of what I love about the Kevin and Nora dynamic. These are two very damaged people who are struggling with their internal and external lives. In a lesser show, when a couple is about to have something good happen to them, something occurs to then split the couple apart. Usually it is some moment of melodrama or a misunderstanding that therefore gives the episode a structure or an event from outside of their control, pulling them apart. But here, instead we have a simple and honest conversation that rotates out of a small moment of awkwardness. When they admit that they don't know how to talk to each other, it is a simple moment of honesty between two grown-ups, and rather than fly off the handle with much gnashing of teeth and pulling of hair, they both accept where they are in this moment and agree to try later. Aren't the best relationships in our lives with friends and loved ones the type of relationships where you can be free with your fears and doubts, free of recriminations? This type of conversation will play out in similar ways, at times profound and at other times cathartic. Keep an eye out for them. There is even a moment early in season two that is genuinely funny and feels like it totally undermines all the typical tropes of storytelling that have ruled TV for decades. Kevin and Nora are far from perfect. There will be times that they hurt each other. There will be times that they don't share their thoughts with each other. Yet at the core, there is a basic understanding and comfort with one another that has me rooting for them the rest of the way. When they first meet, there's a little flirtatiousness to it. You're keen to see where it might go. When Kevin turns up on Nora's doorstep and awkwardly asks her out, you want them to go out because you have a feeling that maybe in these crazy times they can help each other. 
This is the scene where I became an active fan of their affection and I was invested in them finding a way to make it work. Another masterstroke with this series is that the creators stated early on that they have no interest in telling us where the departed went, no compulsion to explain the unexplainable. I loved Loss and stand right by the ending, but I think for a lot of people they became so fixated on having every moment explained in minutiae it took away their enjoyment of the show and made you forget You know what? There's been heaps of shows that have secrets and things to work out, but the reason that show worked was because you were invested in the characters. In the finale of Lost, I was much more interested in where a beloved dog would lay down at the end than what the island was really all about. By explaining to us early on that this mystery won't be answered, we are free to focus on the characters who are left behind and watch how their lives play out. This also makes the viewer a participant in the world and asks us to create and invent what we believe. If 2% of the world's population just suddenly disappeared, that must mean that this world is at least 2% supernatural on some level, right? With this in mind and knowing that they're not going to explain where they went, you get to interpret the world. You get to decide in your head where the departed vanished to. There's other ways to connect with this show and, and... work with it. We can contemplate if Holly Wayne is a shyster or a little bit magic or possibly a mix of both. I love trying to interpret what is going on with Kevin Garvey Sr. and Jr. Is Kevin Sr. a mystical shaman who sees the world in ways we'll never fully understand or has he cracked under the pressure and gone fully mad? Is Kevin Jr. tapped into the collective unconscious of the world and therefore able to see visions he can't quite interpret? Or is he just addicted to pharmaceuticals, the pharmaceuticals that help him avoid the path his father has unintentionally paved? Heck, even the mystery of Kevin's white shirts is something fun to wonder about. Add to that the warring factions of the guilty remnant against the old-fashioned religious beliefs of Matt and his flock, there's a lot to contemplate in this show. Later, we'll be introduced to other ways of looking at what happened on that fateful day. If you embrace the mystery and meet the show somewhere in the middle, you can have fun asking yourself how you'd react to this world. As I've said in previous podcasts, in a world that is slowly becoming known as post-pandemic, we have a slight example of how we would have led our lives. In the previous episode guest, watching Nora cling to ritual was an eye-opener for me because that is exactly the type of world I created for myself in those months when I didn't see anyone. How would I have coped in a post-departure world? Emotionally, I think it would have scarred me, wondering if whatever caused this glitch in the Matrix was about to happen again. I guess it would also depend on who I lost. If it was loved ones, I know I'd be shattered. If it was people I didn't care for, I'm guessing on the surface I'd say all the right things, but when I was with my closest of friends, I'd be celebrating that I wouldn't have to bump into them again. Maybe I'd be hoping or scared that the glitch would reverse and they'd come back. It's a lot to engage with if you are so inclined. Since I find this show so emotionally fulfilling, I don't want to forget how much I enjoy every episode as well. Kevin's reaction to Nora turning the hose on the guilty remnant is priceless. His faux text message to Jill about having sex with Nora for the first time is really cute. The introduction of the National Geographic magazine brings a healthy old-fashioned dose of loss to the proceedings. Little side note. After that episode aired, back issues of that magazine sold out. You check the Amazon listing and you will not be shocked to learn that customers who bought this item also bought the original novel of The Leftovers. 
We also had more time with the twins, who are still my favourite side characters in the show. I love how subtly crucial Amy is to everything as well. She speaks truth to Jill. She playfully interacts with friends of her own age, and the awkwardness of her relationship with Kevin is fascinating. Since we know he blacks out and at times can't remember what has happened to him, it lends a feeling of uncomfortableness to their relationship. For what it's worth, on my first viewing of the show, I didn't think anything had happened between the two of them. I always believed that Amy had just seen where Kevin was in these moments and therefore has more empathy for him. In many ways, Amy sees the truth that others around Kevin can't see and Kevin refuses to confront in himself. There is an awful irony at play in this world as well. Kevin struggles to look after his daughter after his family falls apart. Meanwhile, Tommy struggles to look after Christine after the compound was raided and he too is in constant turmoil as he attempts to fulfil the responsibility thrust upon him and just trying to do the right thing by this poor, scared, young, pregnant girl. When he finds a mirror image of the two of them in the other couple from the Holy Wayne fan club, it is ugly, unsurprising, funny in a fuck-that-holy-wing-guy kind of way, and ultimately tragic. That Tommy gets out of that situation with a small injury is a miracle. It is an important moment for him because it is the final piece of the puzzle he needs to finally expunge the meaning he was looking for in Holy Wayne in the first place. Now Tommy is free to rebuild himself and go in the direction that his instincts take him. It'll be interesting to see the road he will travel down from here. This is such a beautifully realised world that even the stupid game the teenagers play in the woods with the abandoned fridge makes sense. Teenagers are often obsessed with death because for the most part it is so far into the future it is an intellectual pursuit that allows you to explore your darkest fantasies and thoughts. If you are lucky enough to grow older and perhaps wiser you hopefully embrace the moment and lean into living your life to the fullest. Who needs to think about the future, right? Especially when it starts to get a little bit closer. One of my favourite aspects about being in my late 40s is that I have a comfort level that could only grow with experience, that that could only fully be realised by living a life that is examined. My life isn't complete. It will continue to grow and hopefully in healthy ways, but I feel like I know who I am more at this moment in my life than ever before. It was only recently that I looked back on past events and had a very honest conversation with myself about who I am and what makes me who I am. I am not cynical by nature. I love life. I'm at heart an optimist, a can-do person. When I look back at my history, it even states that. But I finally understood that a lot of the people who surrounded me weren't that, were motivated by different aspects of life that I have little interest in. I feel at times that I'm often at odds with an industry that has forgotten artistic expression should be considered worthier than cold, hard cash. I suddenly remembered that I am who I am, and even though I have friends that I love, there is just some we are no longer on the same wavelength, and now it is time to go somewhere else. And that thought removed a burden from my shoulders, from my soul, and I feel light on my feet again. This is the opposite of your teenage years. There is the jockeying for position in your group, trying to find your place amongst your peers and your friends, and the inner workings of trying to understand who you are and what you stand for. This is what makes Jules so compelling. You can see so much turmoil rolling about in her head that she acts impulsively, defiantly, and will often step up to the plate before thinking. The panic she feels locked in the fridge lets us see how Jules feels deep in her mind. 
In time, we'll see if she can find her way into the light or if she'll need a mad mystic to show her the way. And what about Kevin Sr. and Jr. finally face-to-face? There is so much to unpack there. Decades of recriminations, lies, toxic masculinity. You feel that Kevin Jr. has always been a more delicate soul and his father a model of hyper-masculinity. How else can you explain that physique at that age? Imagine what he would have been like when he was a younger man. He would have been domineering and terrifying even when he comforted you. Now Kevin Sr. has a plan for his son that comes down from another dimension where the voices reside. Within the space of a few minutes, he punches his son in the face and kisses him on the lips. You see this and you understand why Kevin Jr. is so fucked up, why he would pass out and find a mad dog and bring it home. Kevin doesn't want to be put down, he wants to be saved. And maybe the rehabilitation of the dog is his way forward. When he and Nora finally make love, there were two contrasting reactions. Nora has given herself over to the moment, but Kevin fades in and out, happy to be with her, uncertain if he can trust himself. When he confesses he might be going crazy, thinking about his father in the mental institution, Nora understands and says, well, my friend, you've come to the right place. For me, the key word here is friend. Friends love and care for one another and do their best to understand, free of judgment and Regardless of their attraction for one another, Nora is the friend that Kevin needs. There is a line in David Bowie's All the Mad Men that reads, I'd rather stay here with all the mad men than perish with the sad men roaming free. We don't know if Kevin and Nora are going to make it, especially with the world that surrounds them. But at this moment here in the dark, in each other's arms, we finally get a sense of hope that Together and personally, they will finally find a moment of grace. Time for some squid bits. Let's begin with the National Geographic issue and what significance it plays in this episode. This issue of National Geographic was originally published in May 1972, four months before another holy day. Uh, I was born in September, so praise me. (laughs) Uh, The title of this episode, Solace for Tired Feet, comes from a caption on page 593-593 of the magazine, which accompanies a photo of two teenage hikers relaxing on a rock warmed by a thermal pool near Snake River in Yellowstone National Park. This issue features a few articles about the park celebrating its 100-year anniversary. I'm guessing that means it is celebrating when it was declared a national park and not how long it has actually been around. It would feel like me celebrating my second birthday for Big Squid, when in fact, I'm 48. (laughs) At one point, you hear Christine mutter in her fever about underwater spiders, and this references another article in the magazine, The Spider That Lives Underwater. Yikes. This is about the diving bell spider, a species known as Argyoneta aquatica, which, regardless of the fancy name, doesn't stop it from sounding horrifying. (laughs) Uh, During Kevin's dream, you hear his police radio mention the upstate New York town of Cairo, which figures prominently in the next episode. The National Geographic magazine has an article about Cairo in Egypt. The episode of Perfect Strangers that 
Amy Watches is from Season 3 called Karate Kids, in case you were keen to go and check that out. There are some interesting parallels between the Garvey family in this episode. The dog trapped in the mailbox is similar to what Jill endures in the refrigerator. Both Kevin and Tommy have their left hands injured and smash mobile phones. Uh, or for my friends abroad, cell phones just in case you got a little bit confused by the Australian vernacular there. The post box in Kevin's Dream is also referenced to where Tom tapes Holly Wayne's money, like not the literal post box, but one that looks the same. The colour blue saturates this episode from the post box to flags and clothes to the ribbons to Nora's room. Even the sex scene is shot with a clear blue filter, although I saw that as red because it was hot. Hot being spelt H-A-W-T. Kevin Senior's tattoo is written in French, but translates to neither God nor Master. This refers to Kevin Senior returning from Vietnam and having trouble fitting in back at home. He left his family and joined the French Foreign Legion for three years. This is what Kevin Jr. is referring to when he accuses his father of leaving him when he needed him most. Uh, the town of Gabota, is that how you pronounce it? New York, last reference in uh, the episode guest is fictional. Tom Perotta admitted he felt like a member of the audience when it came to the National Geographic magazine as he was uncertain what Lindelof intended for its function. Uh, we're really beginning to divert from the book now. Kevin's storyline about mental illness and prophecy doesn't occur in the book. Matt's campaign to save the guilty remnant is also not in the book. The book never specifies the year the sudden departure took place, but the refrigerator in this episode clearly states it being 2011. That is the year the book was published. The Tom and Christine storyline is very different, so different that you're probably just better off reading the book, to be honest. Basically, Holy Wayne is in constant contact with them, and they're attended by a bunch of Holy Wayners rather than be left on their own. They're kind of looked after a little bit more. The Kevin and Nora dynamic is reversed in the book too. Uh, Remember in the book, Kevin goes to Florida with Nora for five days. They have sex on the first date. It's more traditional in the series. And I have to say, I actually prefer the way the series plays out. Uh, Laura and Meg are actually guilty remnant partners in the novel. Unlike here where Meg has a different partner Kevin and Amy do become closer in the book. He sees Amy more as a friend and a peer than as one of his daughter's classmates. It is actually Amy who encourages Kevin to take Nora out to dinner and get her out of her comfort zone. They have an awkward moment towards the end, which kind of freaks Kevin out a little bit as well. But once again, uh, you know, I don't want to spoil everything that happens in the book in case you're keen to read it. The reveal of another pregnant teenage bride to Holly Wayne is an invention of the show. And that brings us to the end. So thank you for listening and joining in with our latest rewatch. Don't forget to head over and join our private Facebook page, Big Squid with Justin Hamilton, where you can join in with the great community we have building there. We're actually starting to get up in numbers, which is nice. So come over and share your thoughts about The Leftovers or anything else you're currently enjoying. Remember, this is a podcast that celebrates entertainment and art, so we want to hear from you and would love to know what you're into. If you have time, any nice reviews on Apple Podcasts or passing on the podcast to people you think might like our work is greatly appreciated. Next week, Ben Elwood returns as we continue our Sophia Coppola series with Marie Antoinette. If you haven't watched that yet and would like to, you have the rest of the week and the weekend to get that done. And of course, there'll be another episode detailing the leftovers. Let's finish with a quote from Scott Glenn. I got into an argument with someone because I said I think Tupac will be regarded as a great poet. They said he was just a punk gangster. 
People said the same thing about Francois Villon, and he's now considered the best French romantic poet of all time. Until then. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.